Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Nancy Mace has a way of being in the middle of things. Whether it's standing up to Trump after January 6th, when many in her party kept quiet, or helping overthrow House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, or warning Republicans about how they were wrong when it comes to the politics of abortion. I think that sometimes our side gets it wrong. We don't show compassion to women. In fact, we attack women. But some of that drama is catching up with Mace back home in South Carolina which on Saturday will be the center of the political world as voters head to the polls in the state's presidential primary. Mace is now back in Trump's corner and even mentioned occasionally as a possible running mate. She endorsed Trump over her two home state Republican candidates, Tim Scott and Nikki Haley. She was a good governor. South Carolina liked her as governor, but South Carolina loves Donald Trump. And as she campaigns around South Carolina for the former president, she's hoping her Trump endorsement will pay dividends this spring in her own primary which features not one, but two candidates, at least partly motivated by revenge. A candidate backed by McCarthy and Mace's own former chief of staff. I spoke to Mace on Thursday, and we dug into the details of her on-again, off-again history with Trump, what she thinks of the Veep talk, impeachment, the revenge plots playing out in her primary, her prediction about Trump's margin of victory on Saturday, and the backstory to that time she wore a giant scarlet A on the House floor. It was my sort of anthem to be sort of like, well, F you. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. I don't ask this question as a criticism, but you have a way of being at the center of things. I don't mean to. Um, I remember to. We, we, Honestly, we talked a I little. Don't mean to. Last yeah. year at the congressional dinner, you gave a very funny speech. I remember uh, <laughs> we, we were talking after that and going over some of the jokes, some of the lines that you did and didn't use. You like to be in the middle of things. You know, I, I'm not saying this as a, as a criticism at all. As mm-hmm. a member of the media, you know, we like people who talk to us and provide good copy. But I mean, what is your thinking of that as a congresswoman? Why is that important? Or why do you think you find yourself so frequently at the center of politics? For me, it's not intentional. Most of the time, it's by accident because (laughs) I just have something I need to get off my chest and I wear my heart on my sleeve. I've been criticized for oversharing. Yeah, I overshare. I tell you too much, (laughs) but I come from a very honest place and I want people to know why I do what I do. And in doing so, I do share too much information sometimes. I find it kind of funny. But also, it's in, South Carolina has a history of having members of Congress who lead on different issues. And so if it gives us a platform to get across responsible spending measures, women's related issues that we care deeply about, cybersecurity, whatever it is, then that's a great opportunity for our district, for our constituencies, and for the state of South Carolina. I don't see it as right. a, it can be as leveraged. criticism. It's an asset. Um, and I look at the great leaders we've had. A lot of South Carolina congressional leaders have 
a huge platform and that's good for our state. I don't I don't see it as a as a criticism like you said or or anything negative. I see it as a as a great opportunity, a huge opportunity that I don't want to waste. I want to be a, an effective leader and that's something that um is helpful in that endeavor. All right, uh your friend Kevin McCarthy. I was going <laughs> to wait till a little later to talk about this, but we can jump around, it's fine. The mm-hmm. the I mean, the national fallout from over from getting rid of McCarthy uh, continues, and it continues right there in South Carolina in your uh, primary. Um, you are a member of what McCarthy World calls the Gates Eight, and McCarthy is uh, seems to be spending his retirement going after the eight of you. Um, and you've drawn uh, looks like two uh, primary opponents. Um, tell us about what it's what 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 post McCarthy life is like and being a target of the former speaker. Uh, the former speaker needs to get a job. I think that's the problem. <laughs> bored and doesn't know what to do with himself. Um, and you know what? He's a loser. He couldn't keep his job as speaker, and he quit the Republican He's a loser. Party. He's a complete loser. He couldn't keep his job as speaker, and he quit on the Republican Party. He quit his job. He put our majority at risk. And I, you know, I pride myself on being a caucus of one. I don't do anything that somebody else has told me to do. And I actually told Kevin coming into Congress, you're probably not going to like me. I'm not going to be with you. (laughs) Again, I'm not going to be with you on every single issue, particularly spending and fiscal policy. That debt ceiling deal he did was a horrible bill. That's $50 trillion of debt we're saddling with our kids and grandkids over the next 10 years. That's a bad that's a bad deal and I've I've taken on Republicans and Democrats for out of control spending. I I see that they are both equally at fault here. But also you couldn't trust him. The very minimum we need is someone who's going to tell the truth and be honest. Democrats couldn't trust him, Republicans couldn't trust him. If you were moderate, you couldn't trust him. If you were conservative, you couldn't trust him. I come from the south. When I shake your hand and I say I'm going to do something and look you in the eye, you better damn well do it. And I don't agree with Mike Johnson, for example, on everything, particularly social issues, but he's a trustworthy guy. When he says he's going to do something, I believe he's going to do it. And he's honest and he'll talk to you. He'll have a conversation with you and he's not going to lie to you. And I just, that is something that I crave and I think the American people crave. And I'm not going to believe in a leader or support a leader that's going to lie to the American people either. It was just lie after lie, and it's not worth it. Do you have any regrets about the change in leadership? I mean, it's not like uh, Mike Johnson is having an easier time. um, No, Mike Johnson inherited inherited every bad deal Kevin negotiated. There's a little bit of like the Kevin nostalgia. There's a little bit of, uh, of, 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 of warm feelings for McCarthy, though, among some of your Republican colleagues, given how chaotic things are now. Well, it was chaotic before Kevin was ousted as speaker. That's the thing. It was more close. It was more behind closed doors, but it was equally chaotic. There was yelling. There was cursing. Uh, you know, damn near fights happening. <laughs> you know, I mean, did you, you ever have? Have you ever had chaos. a? Have you ever had a moment since that vote where you thought, you know what, maybe this wasn't the best idea? Look, seventy-five percent of the country agreed with me on that vote, and I've got the American people on my side. And again. It's not my fault that there are members of my own party that have tried to sabotage us on different issues. I've sat in meetings where we're talking about spending and trying to get border security and certain factions of our own party have threatened to kill the bill if we attach border security to it. In the former speaker's tenure, 
it would have been a lot easier to get away with that. But now it's sort of sunlight's the best medicine. And I'm seeing a whole nother side that I didn't see before. And that's just not where the people are. And so when I agree with my party, I'm going to say so. And when I dis- disagree with them, I'm going to speak out as as I always have. But I try not to live with regret. Um, life is tough enough. And I have to live with the decisions that I make and the votes that I take. I've made some really tough votes. I mean, I voted to uh, hold members of my own party in contempt, just like I did Hunter Biden. I am an equal opportunity. I hold both sides accountable and try to be consistent in that endeavor and be a constitutional conservative, a fiscal conservative, and do the right thing no matter the consequences, because I, I have to represent the people of my district and my state. All right. So tell us about the fallout there in, in South Carolina. What is McCarthy um, doing uh, to try and uh, oust you now? What's it, what's well, it he's like? going to sink several million dollars into my opponent's campaign. And and just let me pause there. He spent $4 million to support you last time or in 2020, right? Right. He's going to spend the same amount to oust me in the primary <laughs> or more or, or more, but he wouldn't have had the majority without me. I mean, that's the thing. I, he reluctantly endorsed me. He reluctantly supported me. It wasn't like he was all in, but if I didn't win- Well, $4 million, that's a, that's a, that, if, if that's reluctance, what would he have spent if he was all, if he was all in? Ten million. He has to. He has to support candidates yep. like me that come from purple districts or come from far right, heavily conservative districts. He wouldn't otherwise normally support, and in, in order to get the majority, I'm actually in a very libertarian minded, very purple, independent minded sort of district. We're right of center on on economic policy. We're left of center on social issues. It is a very different district. And without someone like me, and I consider myself sort of small L libertarian, we don't have the majority. It, you know, so you have to support candidates like me, even if you don't agree with them all the time, if you want to be able to win those majority of seats. And it should not be a surprise that I march the beat of my own drum because that's the kind of district that I have. And I right. appreciate the honesty. All right. Tell us a little bit about the primary. Your opponent, uh, Catherine Templeton, when she got in the mm-hmm. race, her line on you was that the district needs someone committed to service over celebrity and someone who isn't going to flip flop for fame. I, so I would love she's to trying know. to argue. She's trying to argue that you are um, out there trying to get media attention and not serving uh, uh, the district. That's the what, irony, that's what her, her main attack seems is- to be. Well, the irony is men can do it, but the minute a, a fiscally conservative woman does it, somehow it's not the same, right? I um, am on, I do media interviews like a lot of my male colleagues, but they're not getting attacked. I don't see Tim Scott or Lindsey Graham getting attacked the way that I do. And they're on TV more than I am. I actually turn down more TV interviews than I accept, than I do. And the irony is that I have far more legislative staff than I have communication staff. So anybody that says I would do this for celebrity or whatever isn't paying attention or is just choosing to tell a lie. And if you look at the bills that we pass, we pass bills out of committee, we pass bills out of the floor of the House. Biden has signed bills that I've worked on into law, especially in the cybersecurity space. In fact, The last bill that passed on the floor of the House with Kevin McCarthy as Speaker was the MACE Act. And so I actually do a lot 
of legislative work. And I think that's why McCarthy was surprised by your vote, right? (laughs) Well, I mean, the guy didn't even call me, right? You know, he knew where I stood. He knew I was frustrated. He knew that he had lied to me. He knew that we had made some deals that it that he didn't do anything about. And rather than call me directly, he didn't have the balls to call me. He called my <laughs> staff. I mean, he called my staff. I'm a member of Congress. I am a colleague. I am an equal. I was elected for this job, and you didn't have the courage or the the manhood to call me and talk to me about it and see what we could do to make our relationship or make what was wrong right. And that to me is a character of someone who's not willing to lead our conference, not willing to lead our country. I, I am elected just like everybody else. Am I an outspoken woman? Yes. But I'm also a deal maker. I understand how this place works. But if you lie to me, we're going to have problems. And uh, that's just, character is important to me and it matters. The person he called was your chief of staff, Dan Hanlon, who is now mm-hmm. also uh, primarying you. What's what's going on with Dan and you? I, I'm not sure he is. I mean, I know he filed, but I'm not sure he actually runs and it's, he doesn't live in the district. Uh, as far as we can tell, he's not ever voted here, at least not since 2010. Oh, really? That seems and, like a problem. And, and when he registered with the FEC, he registered at a the address of a mellow mushroom. I, I just, I don't know What's how you mellow, take What that, is the mellow mushroom? Should a, I know what that mushroom, is? Mellow mushroom, it's a pizza parlor. Um, it's a okay. great pizza chain, by the way, um, in Hilton Head. I just, um, he all lives across there? the Southeast. I don't know. I don't think he doesn't live in the district. He doesn't live in the district. So I don't think we, I, I don't, I don't see him as a, unless he's going to move to South Carolina and actually file so during filing. In March, I respect my former staff, but I do have a few that are disgruntled, and it says why a lot that? more why, about them. Just, uh, well, why, I want to say I was that reeling the clips that that came up as a thing yeah. with uh, high staff turnover. What do you think that's? Uh, what do you think that's well, about? A lot, a lot of offices have high staff turnover. It's not just me. And the lie that the media told was that I got rid of my entire staff, and I, I didn't actually. All the staff and two of my two of my three offices remained with me. All my South Carolina staff are still with me. It was just the DC office. I got a new chief, so new coach, new team, and I have really high standards. I want to measure all the work that we do. I want to see work product. I want to I want to have measurable obje- objectives. I treat my office like I would my business. And there are some people that don't want to be held accountable for their work product or show you their work and. You know, that's unfortunate, but I respect all of them. I supported all of them. And, you know, um, I'm not going to denigrate, you know, their frustration with my office, but, you know, I have have very high standards. And so what I've seen on the Hill is that a lot of staff, they're underpaid and they're overworked. And I want to make sure that, hey, if you're going to work hard, that you are supported and and that you get everything out of out of this job that you want, but you're going to have to deliver in order to do that. And so um, I try to be as supportive as possible. And that's been the hardest thing for me as a mom is that I was so that's your, your single mom with, with two teenagers? Yeah. Yeah. Two teenagers. Mm-hmm. How old? Uh, 17 and almost 15. Oh, wow. Literally the same age as my two boys. <laughs> the younger one will be 15 on Saturday. So uh-huh. I, uh, you have two girls, right? I have one of each. I have one of each. Oh, it's one of each. Okay. Which mm-hmm. which is the uh, which is which? My the son older is one's the a boy. Oldest. Yeah, my oldest is my son, and my daughter's the youngest. How are you dealing with the teenage years? Are they getting in a lot of trouble? Uh, 
they're, you know, they're, they're tough at times, you know, because their, their issues are different than our issues. Um, but you know, and their issues change know when, like every week in my experience. They they change, <laughs> but I know that they eventually come back. And I mean, when I was when I was You were kind of a rebellious age, teen, right? Well, I mean, I dropped out of school at seventeen. I'd I'd moved out at sixteen. I dropped out of school at seventeen. And and so I had some trauma in my life that I had to deal with. I had emotions that I was dealing with because of the trauma I had experienced. I was a Waffle House waitress at seventeen. You know, I finished school eventually that year, but I had my own share. But I know that even with my challenges growing up as as a teenager, I eventually came back. I eventually what got you back? What what got you back on track? The Citadel. So when I even not even but not before but before that, something must have. uh, Obviously, you had this very awful trauma when you were sixteen. You, yeah. you, you dropped out of high school. You were working at Waffle House. I know you've talked about mm-hmm. that a lot. And then mm-hmm. what kind of what, – what, how did your mindset change to sort of get your life back on track? Well, when I was at the Waffle House, I, I learned a couple things. I learned about the value of hard work, and I learned that I wanted to get my high school diploma. <laughs> so um, – and I did that a couple of months later. I was able to get my high school diploma by taking college classes because I wasn't going to go back to high school because the the, the man who raped me was my classmate. And I wa- there was no choice. I wasn't going back to school. Like that was not a thing. It was not going to happen. But I was able to take college classes and get my high school diploma equivalent and I would eventually go to the Citadel. I was too young at the time. I started the Citadel at 18. I was too young at the time to really articulate why I was doing it. But years later, you know, having unpacked some of my trauma, and when you're a rape survivor, it's not like you get over it in a week or a year. It's lifelong trauma yeah. that you have to deal with. There's some PTSD that comes and goes that you deal with over a lifetime relationships can be very difficult. Personal relationships can be because of that trauma that you've had and the inability to trust people. And um, But I will tell you, for the Citadel, looking back on it now, I'm a little bit older, more mature, obviously, and looking back on it, I had something to prove to myself. And I wanted to prove that I could go to a challenging environment. I could face an obstacle and adversity unlike anything I had ever faced before, and I wouldn't quit. Because when I was raped, I quit. I quit school. I was too afraid to report uh, this to the police because of the shame that I felt, the judgment I knew that would come with it. And I stayed quiet for for years. I mean, my parents obviously wow. knew. My my family knew what happened. Uh, my therapist knew what happened. But I didn't tell a lot of people. I told my best friend, but I didn't just talk about it freely until South Carolina was doing the heartbeat bill. 25 right. You were in the later, state, just to remind people, you were in the state house at that point. Yeah, in the state legislature. But the Citadel provided me an environment where I was challenged beyond every single measure in life, mentally, physically, emotionally, and I didn't quit. And to me, for me, that was something that I didn't know I needed at the time, but subconsciously I had to have known because I put myself through it. And I had this chip on my shoulder, and I just wanted to prove to myself and my parents that I could go somewhere 
and I wouldn't quit, that I could believe in myself, have the courage to believe in myself, have the confidence to believe in myself, and I could make it. Because I didn't think I'd live beyond the age of 18. I thought life would be over by then. And then we made it. And then we would take it day by day, week by week, year by year. And here we are serving as a member of Congress. I never thought that would ever be humanly possible, given where I've come from. And just to remind listeners who don't know the story, when you were in the state legislature and the heartbeat bill was going through, um, this is the moment where you uh, gave a, a speech on the on the mm-hmm. floor um, and spoke the most publicly about what had happened when you you were a teenager. Right, we were doing the heartbeat bill, and like every other state in the country, there were no exceptions for rape or incest, and I was appalled by that. And of course, all the consultants told me, you can't, you can't do that. You can't, you're going to have a primary and, you know, you can't be talking about rape and incest, et cetera. And I said, to hell with it. I said, watch me. And I drafted an amendment to the, to the bill. And I believe we were the first state in the country, followed shortly by Georgia, either right before or right after Georgia did the same thing. Um, But we were the first state in the country to have exceptions for rape and incest in a heartbeat bill. And I gave the speech. I told the world what had happened. I had no notes. I didn't know what I was going to say, but I knew that I was angered as a woman and as a rape survivor that we weren't thinking about women who'd been raped and that we weren't offering certain protections for those women and girls. You know, I wanted to impress upon my colleagues that one, we need to hear the voices of women because at that point, no women were speaking up. Here we are having this debate about this bill with no exceptions. Where were the women? And so I felt compelled as a survivor to be a voice for women, to be a voice for girls and for other survivors and victims in that moment. And um, and we did it. And it passed with those exceptions. Otherwise, it never would have it never would have passed. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. You've had your ups and downs with Trump, as a lot mm-hmm. of his political uh, al- allies, enemies, frenemies uh, have. Mm-hmm. Um, t- what, what was the lowest point of the relationship with him? And how did you sort of dig yourself out of it? Well, I mean, you know, I said this in my endorsement, and I, I say this a lot. I come, I'm a fiscal conservative. I'm socially sensible. I am not going to agree with everyone in my party on everything, every time, or all the time. And yeah, of course, he and I have had our ups and downs <laughs> over the years, like uh, like many other people. But I represent a different portion of the electorate, a different portion of the party that are more independent-minded, more independent-thinking, and... For me, supporting him this go-round was not a difficult choice. I mean, I look at between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, this was a very easy choice. And in my district, we've had MS-13 gang members arrested, for example, in my hometown of Goose Creek, South Carolina, whom very few people have heard of outside of South Carolina. 
We had three years ago a human trafficking bust. 28 people were arrested. I didn't know what fentanyl was 10 years ago. I know, I know two people that died last year personally that oh died God. from fentanyl overdoses. So, I mean, the environment is different now than it was three years ago, seven years ago. And Joe Biden, he's not running the country. <laughs> I mean, there's no way that anyone... Uh, even on the left, and Democrats privately admit this, he's not all there mentally, physically. I mean, he just tried to fall up the stairs of Air Force One yesterday again. I mean, we're kidding ourselves if we're going to sit here in denial and say that Joe Biden is fit to be president. I mean, right. he's just I'm gonna put not. You, I'm going to put you down as a, as a no vote uh, uh, against Biden in the general election. I, 100%. I, yeah. I think, I think that's, that's, that's very clear where, you come, where you're coming from on that. Let's talk about the Republican primary is Saturday. This, this show will come out tomorrow, the day before. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Let's break, break, down the, break down South Carolina politics. Let's spend a few minutes and, Nancy, break down South Carolina politics uh, for the sort of political junkies out there on what to look for uh, on Saturday in uh, Trump versus Haley. Right. Well, number one, every congressional district, every Republican congressional district except for mine, diehard conservative bright red. Mine is very purple. So for the political junkie that's tracking the data, there will be a closer race in my district, in the first congressional district, for two reasons. One, Nikki Haley is is doing everything she can to turn out Democrats to vote in the primary. So we have open primaries. We don't even register by party. So anybody can vote in our Republican primaries. Number yeah. one, that's the first thing. And so it's still not going to make a difference because Trump, even in my district, I believe he'll win by double digits, 10 or 11, maybe it's nine, but he's still going to win by a significant margin despite her attempts to get out Democrat voters. So it's just not going to be enough. The second thing I would say is that my district is a bellwether for the rest of the country. And so the question that reporters, media, journalists, data analysis consultants should be looking at in political junkies is how do independent voters break? And I believe that they are breaking significantly for Donald Trump. So in my district, we have more independent voters than any than either mm. of the two parties. And so from my perspective, seeing how independent voters and undecideds break is going to be a bellwether potentially for the general election and where those voters are. So you know, there are a lot of people that say, hey, this is a hard R district. It is not. This district was a D plus 10 45 days after Roe v. Wade. Okay. So it this ch- is, <laughs> it's, it, it changed, changed dramatically. Your two, but it changed a little bit between your first and second election after redistricting. So in 20, in 20, I won by one point. And then in 22, it got better by one point. Technically, under the Supreme Court case, when there was uh, the hearing in October, the Supreme Court acknowledged my district got 1.36 points better politically. More, That's more, it. more Republican. By one point, and I only but you won, won by one point. But but you're and in 2022, you won by almost 14 points. Correct. I but was the also district the had only changed a little bit. By one point, and I am probably the only Republican in history to run an ad about abortion. And I ran an ad. I as remind soon as people what that ad was. Yeah, remind people. <laughs> it was about. This, I know that, yeah, yeah. It was about rape. I was. I'm a sexual assault survivor. I was raped at the age of 16 by a classmate of mine in high school, 
And that moment changed my life. And ever since then, because of the trauma I experienced at a very young age, I have been fighting for women and women's rights for almost my entire lifetime. When South Carolina was doing its um, heartbeat bill in 2019, all the political class told me, well, you can't do exceptions to rape and incest and life of the mother. That's not where people are. And I said, watch me. That's what we're going to do. And the only reason that bill passed the legislature is because I put exceptions for rape and incest in there. So I've been on the forefront of fighting for women's rights as a Republican for a very long time. I'm also the first woman to graduate from the Citadel, the Military College of South Carolina. And I'm a suburban mom. <laughs> you know, when when Alabama rules against IVF, it's a problem, right? Well, and that was so my I've next very, question. So, well, I've yeah, been very I'm sure outspoken. You're, yeah, tell yeah. us what your reaction was to the Alabama Supreme Court ruling. Well, I mean, one, I think most people, whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, whatever or gray area you're in, I think most people will agree. Science says life begins at conception. However, that doesn't mean that we just turn away women who can't have children and need IVF to get pregnant. We need to make sure we protect IVF for every woman across the country. And so I am really passionate about women's issues. I think that sometimes our side gets it wrong. We don't show compassion to women. In fact, we attack women like myself when I talk about rape or when I talk about access to birth control, those kinds of things. And this is going to be an issue in 24. Um, immigration will be the number one issue, but it's going to be followed very closely behind by women's issues and abortion, et cetera. And it's something that um, I've seen in my own district. We went from post Roe v. Wade to being a 50-50 district. We were a D plus 10. Two months after Roe v. Wade was overturned, we went from being a 51% pro-choice district to over 60% pro-choice district, literally overnight. Wow. Overnight, you know, and we need to do everything we can to protect all forms of cons uh, birth control and contraceptives, including IUDs and IVF, everything. And um, it's really important that we get it right. Where do you think, if you were advising uh, Trump in the general election, what would your advice be for uh, the Republican ticket on this issue? What's how, how should Republicans talk about it in the general election? Well, number one, we shouldn't be afraid to talk about it. People need to know where you stand, but also not be afraid to say that you support birth control. Like if you want to reduce the number of abortions in this country, you have to increase women's access. Well, to birth that's control. the no brainer. And I mean, that's I mean, like, I know, but Republicans yeah. are afraid to say that that's, you know, and, and so that's something that I've been really harping on. And the other thing is that, you know, we shouldn't be afraid to say a second trimester, like most people. And I, I know people who are pro-choice and their weekly, uh, their week gestational limitations, 14 weeks. Mine's 15 to 20, and I, I consider myself pro-life. And I think how we talk about it matters. We should not be demonizing women. As someone who talks a lot about being a survivor, who talks a lot about women's rights, we, we cannot demonize other women. And having that mentality is going to hurt us at the ballot box because Women in my district, they're more than half my district. There are a lot of districts and a lot of states like that. We've got to make sure that we bring suburban women home, that they have a place where they're going to be welcome and not be demonized, whether they're pro-choice or pro-life or pro-IVF or not, et cetera. We need to be kind and show compassion. Should Trump, uh, Trump is reportedly um, for a 16-week ban. Do you think in the general election against Biden, that he should uh, affirmatively come out with a specific position um, 
15, 16, whatever, whatever it is, or should he just well, fudge I think, it? I think, any, I think anywhere in the second trimester is fine to say in the general election, because what Joe Biden is not going to do, Joe Biden is not going to give you his limits because Joe Biden has no limits. Even pro-choice people don't want to see abortion in the third trimester. And, and so ha- having some kind of definite, reasonable, common sense common ground position in the second trimester is a very reasonable position. And I believe a national, that should it be national. Well, I mean, he he has said in his town halls in the past, if we can build consensus. But the problem yeah. is neither side wants to negotiate. Both sides want to dig their heels in. They want to use it as a fundraising wedge or they're afraid of being primaried in either of their primaries, Republican or Democrat, and they're afraid to find the middle ground. And that's the problem with Congress. That's the problem with Washington is there's a lot of reasonable middle ground, but people are too afraid to get there. I 100% understand your decision in the primary Haley against Trump. You've explained it very well. But does it ever uh, tug at you a little bit that um, the politics of this race just were not um, where it was you just couldn't back the the um, the female in the Republican primary against the uh, against Do- Donald Trump, especially given your long record of you know uh, sticking it to the establishment of your, of your party. Well, I mean, Donald Trump is anti. I mean, I do think he's an establishment <laughs> candidate. I mean, well, quite it's, that's a question of when. Do, when do you cross the line into establishment when you're someone like Trump? But yeah. that, well, you, I mean, you, you mean, know what I'm saying. I'm not trying to yeah. get you to, you know. No, but I, and it, I quite did you ever think like, you know, it's too bad. I, I, I couldn't. In, in, I understand why you didn't, and you've explained it very well. But do you ever think, you know, that's a tough decision, and it's, it, it's too bad I'm not for the woman in this race. Well, I mean, as a woman, obviously, I respect her. She was a a good governor. South Carolina liked her as governor, but South Carolina loves Donald Trump. And I still think there's a chance he might pick a woman to be on the ticket. He might pick a a woman to be oh, it's a good segue. Vice president. (laughs) That's a good segue. (laughs) So your name has been mentioned. I know, I know, but I just want to say one more thing. I just want to say, as a woman and as a mom of a teenage girl. I would love nothing more than to see a Republican woman on the ticket in my lifetime. I want my little girl to know that she can grow up one day and be president of the United States of America. And that is something we should all strive for. Obviously qualified, but I remember growing up and thinking, why don't we have, why have we never had a female president? Right. And I wasn't really political. That was just, you know, young Nancy and not really understanding politics growing up. But I want to have you told her about Kamala Harris? <laughs> well, I'm trying to educate her on Republican candidates, um, but she'll make up are her own kids, mind one day when she's able to vote. One day, are they into politics? Do they like are they are they junkies, or are they just don't even care what you it, do? Is, which it it ebbs and flows. Some years they're all about it. Some years they don't want to talk about it. But when it comes time for election season, oh my God, they will get out there and knock doors with me all day long. And in 22, we did this really cool thing. We got electric scooters. And so, oh, those are dangerous. Uh, I stay away from them. Oh my gosh! But if you're going door to door and door knocking and campaigning, oh, that's you very can efficient. Do like yeah, three times. I've fallen off a couple times. I flipped off <laughs> last cycle, but they can be dangerous if you're 46 and trying to fly down the street. But we had so much fun last cycle taking our electric scooters and going door to door in neighborhoods. But it ebbs and flows like every other teenager. I have the same issues that every other parent has, uh, you know, with, with teenage kids. 
Oh man, we could do a whole show on that. Uh, <laughs> being Don't tell them by that. Stu- Don't tell them that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So on the on the VP thing, um, mm-hmm. well, let's let's start with this. I mean, your first issue with 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 Trump before we can talk about the VP thing is he's got Kevin McCarthy whispering in his ear, "Don't in, don't endorse Nancy Mace in that race." You need. I'm I'm obviously speculating, but you and I know this is the mm-hmm. case. Mm-hmm. Uh, go go with Templeton. You are out there supporting Trump, uh, campaigning for him. You were at the rally the other the other night. Um, mm-hmm. How are you going to get Trump's endorsement in this primary? Well, my first focus is to get him elected on Saturday. I mean, that has been my focus for the last couple of weeks since endorsing him is helping him get across the finish line, especially in my district where his opponent is doing everything she can to get Democrats to turn out in our open primaries. And so we're, you know, we're, I was out with Laura Trump yesterday. I'll be on the campaign trail you know, for the next 48 hours and be with them uh, a Saturday night on election night, but just making sure he gets across the finish line. That's, that's my focus right now and, and nothing else. Did you talk to Laura about the endorsement? No, I did not. I, I did not. I, I mean, I'm, my focus genuinely when I say that, I, I don't, I don't try, I don't lie, <laughs> has been to get him across the finish line. I didn't even bring anything up about an endorsement with her. I, I did uh, bring my dog, my six pound dog. Liberty? I know that she loves Liberty and um, Liberty met her yesterday. What kind of dog so, is Liberty? She's a Havanese. Havanese, what's that? Um, they grow long hair. I think they um, were originally like a breed from Cuba, maybe. I always huh. say that she loves You're freedom. You're a communist dog. No, she's not communist. She loves freedom in the Constitution. What's that? No, I was kidding. I was going to say, how do they, you know they what grow, her they're, they're hypo. They're hypoallergenic. And so the father of my children has allergies. And I wanted to make sure that I got the family dog was going to be a dog that didn't get him sick or anybody else sick in the family. Um, and she's lovely. She'll go to Washington with me a bunch and travels with me because she's so small. And um, she doesn't curse at me or yell at me like teenage kids might. <laughs> she, lo- she loves me unconditionally. Oh, and my joke is, you know, if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. So I got one. Washington's a very lonely place. So I got my dog. All right. um, would you um, – are you – Intrigued by the talk of uh, of Nancy Mace as a potential running mate with Donald Trump? Well, how do you I mean, process I that? I mean, obviously, you would say yes if he asked you, right? A- anybody would say yes, but I, I, you know, when was the last time a House member became vice president? I mean, it just it doesn't happen. And my focus has always been on South Carolina. I love the job that I'm doing. I love the results that I have delivered. But I, I do understand, you know, women's issues are going to be a topic in 24 and. I see, you know, an opportunity for me to be able to do that. I've been really vocal on women's issues, and I want to continue to do that to do my part to support our party and support our country. Well, from what you're saying, I mean, his, his he does have a bit of a vulnerability there, and someone with your profile could potentially help him with that. Well, I think that for us up and down the ticket in all of the races, I mean, you've seen mayoral races influenced by the issue of abortion, even though a mayor has no say yeah, in abortion yeah. law. Yeah. And so it doesn't matter what level candidacy or campaign we're talking about, it is going to be an issue up and down the ballot. And what I've tried to do is show po- policies that can win over women. Because as you stated earlier, I won by 14 points. I took women's issues 
head on. I should have only won by two, three, or four, maybe five at most um, two years ago, but we ended up crushing it because I took on women's issues head on. I let women know where I stood. I'll work with both sides on them, but I've tried to show leadership on an area where we are all vulnerable, no matter what office you're running for. Tim Scott is also frequently mentioned. Do you think Tim Scott would be a good running mate? He would be a fantastic running mate. He's got a lot of experience. He's a U.S. senator. He is beloved. Um, I sit with him at church. <laughs> Have you met his uh, his now fiance? Right. Yes, and they are they are a beautiful beautiful couple. I'm very excited for him um, and what lies ahead. Um, Nancy, so one of one of the issues that Trump will struggle with in the general election and that the Biden campaign will will uh, attack him for is um, an issue that you were very um, critical of and upset about, and that is January 6th and the aftermath of, of, of January 6th. What do you say to voters with a profile similar to yours, uh, independent-minded, um, has similar views to you on some of this, on some so- social issues, um, mm-hmm. who were outraged and disgusted by January 6th and think, um, as you said after that, that Trump should be relegated to to, to the past. Um, how, does, how does someone like that overcome uh, their doubts about Trump? It's pretty easy. Three years going on four under Joe Biden. I mean, if you look at every marker, whether it's the economy, inflation, government regulation, government overreach, the border, uh, the border alone is a hill that we should die on. Under Donald Trump, we had Remain in Mexico. We had Title 42. There were over 450 miles of wall that was built along the southern border. And you look now, the 8 million figure we're hearing about may be on the low end in terms of what's happening at our southern border. And you look at the border policies, you know, Biden, you know, he wants to build 20 miles of wall now, all of a sudden in an election year. It's like, come on. Um, we yeah. have to do better. We got, I mean, it, what he's trying to do is masculinity, <coughs> and it's not going to work for the average American. And I, I think that is the issue that you're going to see independence break on will be over immigration and the border. Do you think um, Biden should still be impeached? I haven't. I mean, I haven't said it outright, but the evidence we're collecting, I believe he'll go down as the most corrupt president in the country's history. I think he should be impeached. Um, There's no way you can tell me James Biden, Hunter Biden, all the Bidens, money from communist China. I've seen the SARS reports. We're talking about a lot of money. They were selling access to Joe Biden like that to me. Uh, is a reason why we should impeach him. But we have to show the evidence. We have to show all the facts. We can't politicize impeachment the way Nancy Pelosi did. Well, it's pretty politicized. Come on. Yeah. Well, Pelosi, I mean, Russia hoax. I mean, come on. (laughs) Well, I I just. What did you make of the what did you make of this uh, of of this guy Smirnoff uh, being indicted by Weiss and being exposed as a as a well, liar. Why 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 did it take three and a half years for Weiss to indict him? And the FBI told us that the guy was credible and trustworthy. Jamie Raskin is on record last year yeah. saying the guy was credible. And uh, you know, it's what game are they playing here? I, I, it's very confusing. Yeah, but that does not does that change your mind in any way about the in, in, impeachment? 
No, it do- it doesn't at all because I've seen suspicious activity reports. I've been to the treasury. I've seen bank records and bank accounts, um, loan documents that don't exist. I mean, look at James Biden, that $200,000 check that got sent to Joe Biden after they got that money. I just, you know, it, it none of it adds up and I, and I believe it's corruption. All right, Nancy, thank you for doing this. Uh, really appreciate it. Very uh, excellent conversation. I learned a lot. Yeah. The final thing I have is a prediction for Saturday. Um, what's uh, what's the what's the margin going to be here? I assume you I think, think Trump's going to win. He's going to win by a huge a huge margin. I, I'm going to say 25 to 28, somewhere 25 in there. 28. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, we need to know the backstory about the Scarlet A. Uh, <laughs> Did you did you okay. have that shirt made? Is it just something you you know you have in your no, closet? No, I ha- I no, I had that shirt made. I was so who made it? Uh, a local vendor uh, in down in, there in or my district. DC? Yeah, in Mount. Yeah, local vendor in my district in the Low Country uh, made it for me that morning. Actually, um, that I, morning. I guess that's the pretty day good that turnaround. Yeah, well, I was whatever that day I was traveling up to DC. I don't know if I did it on the flying day or what, but um, no, I had it made in South Carolina and I brought it with me. I was <clears throat> angered by the way I was being treated and singled out by Kevin McCarthy. I thought it was very sexist. I thought it was nasty, disgusting. He treated me differently than any of the other seven. And <clears throat> it was my sort of anthem to be sort of like, well, F you. And I'm not we can, going and we to can sit curse here. on this podcast just so you know. Okay. <laughs> well, I I I'm not a shrinking violet. When I think someone is being totally derogatory or unfair or sexist, I'm going to call them out on it. No matter how much power and how much money you have, what he did instead was wrong. And then you had the mainstream media Wait, what did he laughing. say that was so what did he say that was so I'd horrible? I have to go back I have to go back to the comments, but I just remember being singled out and I remember it being derogatory and sexist. And I remember the mainstream media laughing about it and going along with it. A lot of the women did not, but the male reporters did. And I just thought it was disgusting. If we want to win women over in 24, we can't treat women poorly. Even if you disagree with them, we should treat them equally. So what? I had one vote he didn't like. He could have earned that vote, but refused to even make contact with me. He had to call my my staff instead. Like He didn't have the, the manhood to have a conversation with me. He didn't have the courage to do that. And that to me was just, you know, you're weak at that point and you're singling me out. You're picking on me. Yeah, I'm going to wear the scarlet letter. That's going to be my anthem. Everyone says, hey, you shouldn't do this or that or whatever. I marched the beat of my own drum, but I came home and I had a lot of independent leaning women that were like, oh, we loved it because we didn't like the way you were being treated and you were being singled out um, and treated differently than everybody else. And thank you for standing up. Thank you for standing up for yourself and for us. And so I think a lot of women connected with it because I felt persecuted. And that was just my sort of F you to the establishment. I wasn't having any of it. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. We'll be covering yeah, your your, your primary in general very closely. Okay. And we'll mm-hmm. see you down there and in DC. Okay. Thank you so much. Have a great week. And that's our show. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Thank you to Bruce Roberts for field production in Charleston. Tell us what you think about the show or who you'd like to hear on Deep Dive. You can email me at rlizza at politico.com. 
And please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.